Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. My name is Penny. For those of you who are visiting with us, I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And if you are a visitor or guest, uh, welcome. We are glad that you're with us as we gather uh, to worship, to sing to God, to sit under his word. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at a portion of God's word taken from John 17. John 17. So last week we uh, began... Uh, looking at Jesus's high priestly prayer, which takes place in John chapter 17. And we're going to look at this for three weeks. So this is the second week of this prayer. And last week, what we saw was that Jesus began this prayer by uh, speaking of his own glory. He, was, uh, he knows that the end is near. He is about to go to the cross, to his death, and then subsequently his resurrection. And he asked the Father to glorify him in this event, that as he gives eternal life to his people, that Jesus and the Father both would be mutually glorified. Now he's turning his attention, um, flowing out of that mutual glorification that is going to occur between Father and Son. Jesus prays for his people, his disciples, those who have walked with him, those who have heard his words. He prays for them as they live in the world and how they are to live distinctly from it. So let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 6 of John 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, and they, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, if you've been here for any period of time, at least over the last year while I've been with y'all, you've probably started to pick up that I have a little bit of an affinity for the Band of Brothers, uh, that wonderful miniseries that HBO produced that depicts the, the story of the 101st Airborne Easy Company. It, it follows them from their training in Camp Tekoa to their dropping behind enemy lines on D-Day to holding the line at the Battle of the Bulge and taking Hitler's eagle's nest. It, it really is a wonderful thing to watch. In fact, every time that Kat's out and I need something to watch without her, you know, because because the surest way to marital strife is to watch the next episode of whatever you're watching without your spouse. I mean, maybe, maybe that only happens in my family, but, um, but uh, so when she's not home, I, I often turn this on. I 
click over to the next episode of Band of Brothers, and there's this one scene in, at the end of the episode called Crossroads that, that I particularly like. It's quite humorous and, uh, well, humorous in the moment. But, um, but anyway, uh, Easy Company has held the line yet again. They've resisted uh, the German advancement, and now they're moving into the country of Belgium. It's the middle of winter, it's cold, they don't have cold weather clothes, they're, they have very little ammo, and they're about to go to the line again. The trucks drop them off, and there's Easy Company. They're huddled all around together trying to stay warm. They know that they're, they've got to go again to the line. They're about to enter into Bastogne and, and hold the line, which would have been the battle that famously was called the Battle of the Bulge. This is where they're about to go. And as they're standing there wondering where the ammo is going to come from, where their cold weather clothes are going to come, they see these men, American soldiers, retreating past them. Their heads are hanging low, they're disheveled, they're distraught, they're bloodied and they're bruised. They're retreating away from the line and the men of Easy Company are saying, where are you going? And these men are, are taken aback. They, they couldn't hold. The German shelling was too much. They couldn't hold the line, and so now they're in retreat. The very place in which they're retreating from is the place that Easy is about to go to. Well, as they're standing there and as they're trying to take as much ammo from these men that are retreating and, and gloves and other cold-weather clothes, this, this lieutenant pulls up, and he's got a jeep. And it's filled with ammo. It's not a lot of ammo, but it's all that they could muster. And he looks at the easy CO, Captain Winters. And he says, this is all I've got. I can try and make a run, but the Germans have cut off the road. It looks like you're going to be surrounded. Okay, think about that. They're, they're undermanned, underclothed. They're lacking ammo. And they're going to spend the next few days, the next few weeks, they're going to spend surrounded by the enemy. They're going to be surrounded by these people who oppose them, who seek their ill. I wonder if sometimes you feel like that's what your experience is like. You look around the world, you interact with your coworkers or your neighbors, and, and maybe you feel like, man, I feel like I am just surrounded by those who are not my friends, but are my foes. I'm surrounded by people who, who once thought the church was this thing that, that was beautiful and good, right? That, that at one point, people actually cared what the church thought and, and wanted to hear our counsel. But now it seems at best we're marginalized and ignored, but at worst, we're thought of as distrusted, as hindering modern living can feel like we're surrounded. I mean, just the other day, just the other day in, in a judicial nomination confirmation hearing, a senator of our country said of this justice that was coming to be nominated, said of their religious faith, your dogma lives loudly in you. And that is a concern. We hear those words and we see those looks on people's faces of skepticism or of curiosity when we say we're a Christian, or when I say I'm a pastor, <laughs> and that wonder, it can make us feel like we're surrounded, doesn't it? I mean, maybe the Abbott brothers are right when they talked about the evil that resides in our heart and in the world. I step out my front door and feel it surround me. Do you feel that? 
Of course you do. Maybe not right this moment. Maybe not when you awoke on a beautiful Sunday morning to come and sing with God's people, but, but there are times when we have felt that completely surrounded as though there is a war being waged for our very souls. And biblically speaking, there is. I mean, that's what Jesus said right at the end of chapter 16. I alluded to it last week. Jesus said about his disciples, you will face tribulation. And in verse 14 of our passage today, he says that the world will hate you. You will face tribulation. The world will hate you. Jesus says that the world's going to hate us because we're not to be like the world. We're going to face tribulations and And when we hear those sorts of things, it's enough to make us want to retreat, isn't it? I mean, like, let's pack up the bags, let's put on the the rucksack, let's hit the AT and, and find somewhere where no one will find us, right? A little cabin in the woods where we can be completely retreating away from the world. I mean, do you all ever feel that? Maybe that's the option. Maybe that's what we're supposed to do, retreat seclude ourselves, create these enclaves of communities that are completely cloistered away from the world. Or may, maybe, maybe that's really not an option because, um, because if you follow me into the wilderness, we will starve. <laughs> uh, we'll eat some sort of berry and we'll all be dead in a couple days, right? Like the, that's what's going to happen. So we know that that's really not the option. So what we do is we actually insulate ourselves in our own little communities, in our own little homes, We keep the world at bay. We retreat in other ways. Maybe that's the option. We create our own Christian version of the movie The Village, but but that's not the option that Jesus gives us. In fact, in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And then in verse 18, he says, I have sent them into the world. So the idea of a cloistered life, Jesus doesn't give us that option. So, so that option's not on the table when we're surrounded to retreat. So, so maybe the other option is that we simply accommodate. We start looking like the world. We don't retreat away from it. We immerse ourselves so much in it that, that we look completely like it, that there's no distinction between us and it. Now, now we actually... Um, uh, we, we mask this with religious-sounding, missional-type language, like, well, I'm just engaged in the world. But really, we're just making an excuse for us to look like the world and for our own license. We haven't retreated, but we've become like it. There's nothing distinct about us. Maybe that's the option. But Jesus doesn't give us that option either. He says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, out of the world so that we would not be like the world but we are removed from it that that he has given us out of the world jesus is saying we've been delivered from it that we're no longer like it and paul picks up this theme in ephesians 2 in ephesians 2 paul says that we once walked following the course of the world but god through christ delivered us from our former manner of life not that we would return to that former manner of life but that we would live as the children of god So accommodating to the world isn't the option either. If retreat and accommodation aren't the answer, then there must be a third way, and and there is. The third way is what we see in this passage. Not to retreat, but to live in the world. Not to 
become like the world, but to be distinct from it. You've heard that phrase, to be in the world, but not of it. That's what we're called to be, to live in the midst of the world, but to be distinct from it. But, but that sounds so, like, so much like theological jargon, doesn't it? Be in the world, but not of it. I mean, I mean what does that really look like? Well, well kids, it kind of looks like this. Y'all have seen uh, aquariums, right? Maybe you have a little fishbowl at home, right? And where, what do fish live in? They live in water. They are completely 100% surrounded by water, right? At least fish that are alive, <laughs> right? And they do everything that they do, whatever it means to be a fish, they do it surrounded by water, right? They swim with their fishy friends in the water, and they frolic with their fishy families in the water, and they eat, and they sleep, and I guess fish drink, I don't know, but they breathe, you know, they do everything in the midst of the water. They are completely 100% surrounded by it, and yet, kids, we, we would never make the assumption that fish are water, though, right? Like, they're completely distinct from it. They're surrounded by it, and yet they're different from it. And that's what it means to live in the world, but not of it. We are in it, we are surrounded by it, but we are to be completely distinct. As distinct as the fish is from the water, that is what Christians are to be from the world. So what does that look like? Like, how do we do that, though? I mean, it sounds great, but how does this play out? Well, I want to say that the first way in which we live in the world is that we live in the world with courage. We live with courage, and I lead with courage because it's so easy for us to lead, live with fear. I mean, just the other night, Kat and I went to uh, this, this thing put on by the kids' school about internet safety and all the different apps that are on phones right now, right? Most of them I had heard of, but there were a few that were only a couple months old I had never heard of. And in of themselves, these apps aren't evil, but they're being used for evil things, right? The predators are using them to prey on the innocent, the naive, and the kind, and the gentle. They're, they're using them for wicked and evil ways, and you hear that, and it makes you scared to death. <laughs> and it's not just apps, but there's all sorts of things around us that can cause us to live with great fear. But as Christians, we're called to live with courage, not the kind of courage that says there's the hill and I'm going to take it no matter the cost and I don't care who I have to run over. Not that kind of courage, but courage that says despite all I see, despite all that I experience, despite the fears that I feel, I know there's a better way. Courage to keep claiming Jesus even when it's not popular and doing it out of love for Christ and love for our neighbor. Courage. It's not a courage that we create in of ourselves, but it's a courage that comes from knowing that we have one who pleads for us. You see, that's why we can have courage. Because Christ pleads for us. He prays on our behalf. That's what this entire chapter is. It's Jesus praying, but in verse 9, he makes it, makes it explicit. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Do you hear that? Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. Like, let that sink in for a second. I mean, we, we know that cliched old phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. 
the king of the universe right now is in the throne room of God and he intercedes on your behalf. That's what 1 John 2 tells us. He is praying for you, for his people, not just the disciples that originally heard his, his message that walked with him, that, that touched him, but for all of his people, even those who would believe through the disciples' message, he pleads for you. In Romans 8, we're told that Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, as we live in this world, we have an advocate. Someone who is standing before the Father in heaven, and he is pleading our case, not based on our own merits, not based on our courage, not based on our righteous deeds, but based on his righteousness. He's the one who has died and risen again, and so he stands, he uses that glory that we talked about last week, that glory that he has returned to in the presence of the Father that he had before the creation of the world. He's using that glory to pray on your behalf. That's why we can have courage. We can have courage because we have an intercessor in the very throne room of God, the one who has overcome the world. That's what he said in chapter 16. He said, you will have tribulation, but take heart, have courage. I've overcome the world. That's why we can have courage, because he pleads for us, but also he protects us. Look what he says in verse 11, at the end of verse 11 through 12. Jesus says to the Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that we would be kept, guarded and protected, not by just Jesus, but actually by the Father. That's what he said. Both of them are working to guard us. But what is this guarding? Because it's clearly not that we're just going to have all uh, roses and daisies, right? I mean, he just said we're going to have tribulation, the world's going to hate us. So what kind of guarding is Jesus talking about? What kind of protection? Well, it must be that of eternal life. The reason why I think that is because, well, one, he said we're going to have tribulation, but also he said of his own disciples, not one of them is lost, but the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now think about the the early disciples, those original 12. All but John died a martyr's death. And yet Jesus said, I have kept them. I've guarded them. I have protected them. They face tribulation and sword. They face the world's hatred. And yet not one has been lost. It's not just them that he says that over, but also us. He's guarding us for eternal life. In Romans 8, Paul goes on. He talks about this one who intercedes for us, and then he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Shall any of those things separate from the love of Christ? No. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Not darkness or death. Not 
principalities or princes, not hatred or wickedness. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He protects us. That's why we can have courage. He says, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. He then goes on and says, fear not. Fear not. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Did you hear that? Our protector pleads for us. Our advocate guards us. That's why we can live with courage in this world. As we are living in the midst of this world, that is why we can live with courage and not fear. That's, that's why we can resist the temptation to resist, to retreat, or to accommodate, because we, we have one who protects us, who cares for us. I mean, what is man? What can man do but take our lives? <laughs> but our souls he holds forever. That's why we can have courage. We live with courage in the world, but, but we don't simply live with courage in this world as we live in the midst of it. We also live distinctly from it. That's what Jesus said in verse 14. This is the other part of it, in the world but not of it. We're in it, but we live distinctly from it. Verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verses 16 through 19, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for the sake, for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Did you hear what he said? We're not of the world. As distinct as Jesus is, he was not of the world, and so neither are we. That we live distinctly from the world. Now, what's fascinating is those words that he uses, sanctify and consecrate, they're, they're actually the same verb. So he says, I consecrate myself, sanctify them. It's the same verb just being used in, in different forms. And so he's using the same idea about himself as he does for his people, for us. But that word can kind of get us tripped up a little bit. I mean, sanctify, right? The, another way of translating the word sanctify is to be holy, to be made holy, to become holy. So what is Jesus saying? Because it makes it sound like then, is, is Jesus saying I'm becoming holier? <laughs> well, f we know from a moral standpoint that can't be true, right? Um, I mean, that would be heretical. <laughs> Jesus has always been holy. He has always been perfect. And so that can't be what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, holy doesn't, or sanctify, or consecrate, doesn't simply mean moral from, in the sense of our behavior, but it can actually have other connotations, and one connotation is to be set apart. And actually, our ESV Bibles help us with that. So if you've been following along with an ESV Bible, if you have one, um, there's actually these little footnotes there. Maybe in other translations there are as well. I, I didn't look, but under the word, with the word sanctify and with the word consecrate, there's these little footnotes. And when we look down, what we are provided is the translators are helping us out. They're saying that there's a fuller understanding of what this word means, and what it means is to be set apart for the holy service to God. To be set apart, that's what it can mean to be holy or to be consecrated as well. I mean, that's what we see actually throughout the Old Testament, that, that there were things that were consecrated, that were set apart for, 
God's holy purposes like the temple or the instruments in the temple or the priests or even the people of God, you will be a holy nation. That actually doesn't start in 1 Peter. It comes out of Exodus. That you will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, that we've been set apart. Set apart to live distinctively from this world. To look and live and speak and act in a way that is not reflective of this world. That's what it means to be set apart. And so even as we are living in the midst of it with great courage, we do so in a way that reflects not this world, but reflects the one who has called us out of the world. They are not of the world. That's what he said. And so what it means is that we are non-worldly people. Maybe, why don't, why don't we call, why aren't churches called that? Like, non-worldly Presbyterian church. I don't know, probably people wouldn't come, that's why. But, but you know, like, that's who we are. We're non-worldly people. We're different from this world. We're distinct. We are following after Jesus. Now think about the privilege that that is to be set apart for the work of Christ. I mean, what a great privilege it is to represent him in the world. To live in a manner that actually reflects the way that humanity was intended to live. To live with love and courage. To live with humility and kindness. That is a great privilege that he has given us. That he sends us into the world to do this. But, but how do we do this? I mean, what does this look like to live distinctively? There's a lot of things that we could say. Um, I, I could list out like millions, right? We could just sit around and talk about what it looks like to live distinctively Christian lives in our places of work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our families, how our words should reflect what we believe about Christ and how our actions should permeate, uh, should reflect what we believe about the gospel and how everything about us should permeate the truth of the gospel to our neighbor. We could talk about a whole host of things, right? It could just go on and on and on. But I want to say this, that if we're going to live distinctive lives, it means that at the very root, at the very foundation, that the way in which we are to be distinctive is that we must be people of the word. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus says it. Four times in these few verses, he speaks of God's word. In verse six, he says, they have kept your word. Verse 8, he says, I have given them your words, and they received them. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. You see, the way that we become distinct, the way that we are sanctified is through the word of God. Because it is in the word that we're told what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're, we're told what it looks like to be more and more like him. See, the word shapes us and helps us to resist the shaping of the world. If we're going to be totally distinct from the world, we must be people of the word. And so that means we need to be in the word. And so I know what you guys are thinking now. You're thinking, okay, this is the time when Penny makes us feel really guilty for spending that hour and a half trolling my high school friend on Facebook who I haven't seen in high school rather than reading my Bible. Anybody else thinking that? <laughs> Or this is where I'm going to feel guilty because I slept in until like uh, 7.30 and Payne's going to tell me to get up at 4.30 and fast and pray and, and read the Bible before I go to work, right? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Um, and, and it's true. <laughs> Hopefully not to make you feel guilty, but there are some times where we just need to stop looking at Pinterest, y'all, and read the Bible. 
Or guys, stop looking at Pinterest. <laughs> right? And there are times where we need to stop playing on the internet and we need to stop watching TV and we need to put away that magazine and there's a whole host of things. We could list all of them out and, and we could talk about that. And, but, but you know what? I actually want to think about being in the Word a little bit differently. I want to think about it a little bit differently because I started reflecting on my own life over the last couple of weeks about my time in the Word. And, you know, oftentimes I read the Bible in the morning before my day gets going, and it's great sometimes. You know, it's better than nothing. But oftentimes it's like, I mean, do you all experience this? You close the Bible, you eat your breakfast, you get your cup of coffee, you go to work, and it's like, I didn't think anything about what I read or about what it means to be a Christian maybe the rest of the day. I started thinking about that, and I started thinking, you know, if, if I really believe that to live a distinctive life as a Christian, as a follower of Christ in this world, means that I have to be a person of the word, that it is the word that shapes and forms my soul, then it means I need to be feeding on it regularly. So think about this. Like, um, I bet most of you have breakfast every morning. Probably all of you do. Okay? Um, and, and so you eat your good, hearty breakfast, maybe bacon and eggs, maybe it's just a bagel, maybe it's a protein bar, I, d- I don't know what you guys eat, but, but you have your breakfast, and then lunch comes, you know, it's 11.30, 12 o'clock, or if you're meeting with me, it's 11.45, because I, l- I like to, I don't know, it's just different, 11.45. Um, so we're eating, and, and you know what, no one's ever said to me, you know, I, I don't want lunch today, because uh, those eggs from uh, 6 o'clock this morning, they're still tiding me over. I'm still pretty full. And at about 2.30 when you're needing that little Snickers bar, you know, those like fun size Snickers bar that's in the break room because that's where we keep them at the office. They're in the break room by Doug. So you guys can come and get them if you want. But, but at that 2.30, you need a little bit of energy to make it through the day. You know, you don't go, you know, that cereal from this morning, I'm it's still, it's enough. I'm, I'm doing good. I don't need any more energy. And at dinner, when it's all spread out and you've got that beautiful dinner before you, you don't push away your plate and go, that bagel this morning is still, still sustaining me. I mean, anybody? Of course not. Or maybe you do that once, <laughs> but you can't maintain healthy lifestyle doing that, right? Like your body is not made to physically sustain itself off of bacon and eggs one morning a week, right? Or just in the morning every day. You need to keep eating to sustain yourself. And I started thinking about this, and I realized that the five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes maybe that I spend in the morning in the Word, and that's it, I'm actually malnourishing my soul. And so I realized something needed to change. And so I, I took up a new practice. And this, isn't, uh, this is me just uh, looking to the Benedictines, the rule of St. Benedict. I read it years ago. And so years ago, I actually adopted a new practice. It was actually in regards to prayer. So three times a day, I took my phone, and I didn't throw it away. <laughs> I didn't turn it off. I took my phone, and I set three alarms throughout the day. At 10.32 and 4, I have a bell that goes off. And at 10.32 and 4, the bell goes off and it reminds me to pray because I realized I was going, the pastor in St. Louis, me, pastoring, and I was going days and weeks without praying because I was so busy doing stuff. And so I needed these reminders to pray. And just the last couple weeks, I realized, you know what? I need these reminders to read too. 
And so what I started doing was when the bell goes off like Pavlov's dog, <laughs> I now grab my Bible and I read. And maybe it's just a chapter. Maybe it's just a couple verses. Maybe it's a couple chapters. And then I pray. And sometimes what I've just read informs my prayer. And sometimes those prayers are really short, like, Lord, help me get through this next conversation. Or sometimes it's for my kids as they're at school. Lord, help them to be salt and light in their school. Or sometimes it's for y'all. God, make, make CTK a place where, where people know the love of God and where we're loving our neighbors and our coworkers. Sometimes that's what I do. But, but what I realized was if, I'm, if my soul is going to be sustained, not just for years, not just for, for months, not just for weeks, but for today, I needed to be eating of the word regularly. Now, maybe that's what you need to do. You know, take, take your phone. Like, when was the last time the pastor encouraged you to be on your phone? <laughs> take your phone. And maybe at 10.30 and 2 and at 4, there's going to be a bell that would go off. Download the ESV Bible app. You can just read it in your cubicle. You can go for a walk around your business. Just take a look at it as you're walking. Say a little prayer. I mean, think about how different we would be. Like, just, just think about that. How differently we would be as a community if we knew we were all reading and praying together at the same time. That, that we were allowing God's word to form and fashion us, to reform and strengthen us, to resist the world together. I imagine that if we took up practices like this, it doesn't have to be just like this, but if we took up practices like this, we would actually end up living distinct lives from this world. We couldn't help but do it. As the world is reshaping our hearts and our minds, as the word is, is changing our affections and our desires, we couldn't help but live distinctively in the world but not of it. We need to be people of the word. Well, if you're familiar with Band of Brothers, then you know that I actually left out the best part. I left out the best line because Easy Company is about to take the line at Bastogne and hold the line at the Battle of the Bulge. And this lieutenant drives up and he says, the Germans have cut off the road. I don't know if we're going to get any more ammo, anything else to you. Captain, it looks like you're surrounded. And Captain Winters, the CEO, the CEO of Easy Company, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't retreat. He doesn't say, men, join the ranks of those who are leaving. He doesn't go to his, his uh, officers that are in charge of him and say, we need a better plan. No, instead, he, he looks at the lieutenant, and he kind of smirks, and he says, we're paratroopers, lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And friends, as people of God's word, as Christians living out our days and until Jesus returns, we're going to be surrounded by the world. And that is not cause for retreat or accommodation. It is not cause for fear or worry. No, but as we live in the midst of this world, we live with courage. Because the king of the world, the one who has overcome it, he pleads on our behalf and he protects us all our days. 
We live in the world, but we don't live of it. Even as we are surrounded by it, we live distinctive Christian lives formed and fashioned by the word of God. Friends, we don't retreat. We don't accommodate. We don't give in to fear. But we live in the world, not of it. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that as we seek to respond in faith, in obedience to being in this world as you have sent us into it, that you would equip us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us resolve and trust, dependence and faith, that we would not become like it, that we would not retreat away from it, but that we would lead distinctive Christian lives in the midst of it. Lord Jesus, you are not of this world, and because of you, neither are we. And so we ask that you would equip us to live as people of your word, reflectors of your glory, representatives of the king. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, and God's people said together, amen.